Romans chapter 7. I've, I had to read that two or three times. and It's actually, um, the concept's probably not that, that complicated, but comprehension is, for me certainly, was pretty difficult. So, um, so if you find that you lose the thread, uh, well, I certainly did the first time I read it, and so I'm really looking forward to Carl's explanation as well because I think that's going to be helpful to um, really understand the important truth that we can read there in um, Romans chapter 7. So let's all, all give it a go and let's be dependent on the Holy Spirit to, to reveal this scripture to us. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to a husband as long as he's alive. But if a husband dies... She is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it it not been for the law. For... I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For, apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, 
I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Thanks, Carl. Clear, wasn't it? It's crystal. If you're super keen, I wrote an article on this chapter actually many years ago. If you, if you Google me, which you should all be doing anyway, um, I'm not on social media except for academia.edu. You'll find a paper there on Romans 7, so dig into it. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that uh, you're a God who knows us. Uh, and who knows every detail of our lives and every detail of our hearts uh, and every detail of the sins that we commit, you know them better than we do. Uh, And Lord, uh, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we ask that you would um, reveal to us who we are, um, the sin that runs deeply through us. Uh, But Lord, more than that, uh, we ask that you would reveal to us the great, truths of the gospel, um, that in Jesus Christ there's freedom from sin and condemnation. Uh, Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I wonder if you can uh, relate to this scenario. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few years, maybe you've been a Christian for many years, for 20 or 30 years, but the problem is that you still seem to be battling with the same sins that you are battling before you became a Christian or, or, or that you've been battling for a last number of years. That sin might be greed. Uh, maybe that sin is envy. You remain deeply envious of the people around you. Uh, it may be anger. You try to be calm, you try to be uh, gentle, but, but anger keeps welling up inside of you. Perhaps it's pornography. There is a plague of pornography, uh, in, not only in our world, but in the church as well. Maybe it's how you use alcohol uh, or other drugs. Whatever it is, you're fighting this sin, you're fighting those sins, whatever they are, you're fighting them, and there may have been small victories, but there's also been ongoing failure. 
And the question is, I suppose, is it supposed to be like that? Is that supposed to be what what it feels like to live the Christian life? After all, the Bible says, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that if, we've, if we belong to Christ, we've died to sin and we're alive to God. But you look at your life and you think, sin seems to be as alive now as it was before. Maybe. Well, that's exactly the question that Paul is addressing here in Romans. Is it supposed to be like that? Uh, We're returning, as Chris said, to the book of Romans. In the first part of last year, we looked at chapters 1 to 6, and we're picking up here in Romans 7, and we'll work through over the next few weeks uh, thinking about the rest of the book of Romans. But so far in Romans, Paul has been explaining what the good news about Jesus really is. He's given us the foundation of the gospel. He's given us this good news that although we've rebelled against God, uh, in, in Jesus, God offers us reconciliation with himself. God offers us that as a gift, that's not something that we can earn. He offers it to us as a gift and we have to receive it as a gift by faith. And that gift that God gives us is reconciliation, yes, but forgiveness and life through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. But now Paul comes to this question, okay, if that's the gospel, well, what difference does that make on the ground? What difference does that make to my everyday life? How does it feel to have received the gospel? What does it look like? Is there a difference? Well, Paul begins uh, chapter 7 by summarising the gospel. He begins with this extraordinary statement. He says in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? In other words, once you're dead, you're no longer bound by the various obligations of God's law. In the Old Testament, the the, the Mosaic law. To demonstrate that logic, Paul gives the example of a wife. He says, while her husband is alive, she's bound to her husband. She has to remain faithful to her husband so that if she sleeps uh, around, if she sleeps with anyone else, she's committing adultery. She can't do that. She's bound to her husband. But here's the interesting thing, Paul says. If her husband dies, she's free. She's free from that obligation. She's free to marry someone else. And Paul says that it's a bit the same when we come to put our trust in Jesus. Through his death uh, in our place, we've died to the obligations of the law. The law no longer binds us. Uh, It's important to understand that when Paul says we're freed from the law, he doesn't uh, just have in mind a set of rules, but the whole package deal that Uh, which the law was that God had given to Moses. In Exodus 20 uh, and following, uh, God had given to Moses a whole lot of laws. The law that God had given to Moses set out how Israel was to be ordered as a society. And it instituted a whole variety of sacrifices and rituals that were supposed to foretell the gospel, to explain to people what the gospel was, to give people the hope of the gospel. When Paul says that we've been freed from the law, he means that we've been freed from that whole system. And at one level, that's really obvious, right? At one level, we know that. We no longer order ourselves as a theocratic nation ruled by a king under God, a king who sits in Jerusalem. Uh, We no longer have a temple. 
which we make a pilgrimage to every year and we, and we go every week or whatever it is to offer our sacrifices to God. We no longer do that. We no longer offer sacrifices. We no longer submit ourselves to the cleansing uh, ceremonies of the Old Testament. We've been freed from the law. But why? Why have we been freed from that Old Testament law? Paul explains what was wrong with the law in verse 5. He says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. So what Paul is saying is that all that the law brought was death. He explains how it brought death in verse 7 and following. He says, all the law did was to give him new ideas on how to sin. So he heard the the command, don't covet, and instead of that helping him to be a better person, he thought well, that's a great idea. Maybe I should covet something. Uh, And it's true, isn't it? Uh, You know, you say to a child, don't jump in that puddle. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I don't even need to tell you what happens next, do I? I still remember my parents telling me things like that. Carl, don't, don't jump in that puddle. And the voice in my head, jump in the puddle, Carl. Jump in the puddle. I remember, I remember this walk, actually. I remember going on a bushwalk with my family. And, uh, and we crossed this stream. And, uh, and it wasn't even like, don't, don't do it. But someone said, Carl, don't care for what you tread on. It's very slippery. You know? And on the way back, I thought, oh, I'll, just see. I'll just see what it's like. The next thing I remember is looking up at the, uh, at the sky. I'd fallen on, on, the, on my back and completely hit my head. But we know what, we know what it's like, isn't it? Don't, don't. Don't do that. Uh, And it's not just children, but we as adults as well, we hear that command and we think, well, actually, that's a great idea. Uh, You cannot beat envy, you cannot beat greed, you cannot beat selfishness, you cannot beat anger or sexual immorality or addiction. You cannot beat any of those things by repeating over and over and over and over to yourself in your head, I must not be greedy. I must not be envious. I must not be sexually immoral. It doesn't work. It's a blunt instrument. It it might help a bit, but it can't solve the problem, which is the deep-rooted reality of sin within us. And yet there's this widespread belief in our society that if only we teach people what's right, if only we give people the, the, the right education, that they'll make the right choices. It's ingrained into our entire society. It's ingrained into our education system. It's ingrained into the policies that our governments make. If only we give people the right information, then our society will be transformed. We'll be new people. But transparently, that is not true. Because often people have all the right information that they need and they still make the wrong choices. Contrary to our plain experience, our society believes that the problem with people is a lack of information. But the Bible says our problem is not a lack of information. The Bible says we have all the information that we need and we still choose to do the wrong thing. What Paul is saying is that the problem that you and I have runs so deeply within us that rules and regulations cannot fix the problem. 
And ceremonies and rituals cannot fix the problem. Don't think that you can fix yourself by, up by knowing the rules or by imposing more and more restrictions on yourself, being more and more severe on, your, on, on yourself. It won't work. Sure, those things can be helpful uh, within the context of the gospel, but they don't solve the basic problem that apart from Christ, you and I are dead in sin. We're dead in it and we need to be made alive. We're imprisoned by it. And we need to be set free. And no rule and no ceremony and no ritual can bring us to life. Except God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can raise us from being dead and imprisoned in sin. So rules and education can't make us better. better. We need more than that. But to say that we've been freed from the law doesn't mean that we've been freed to do whatever we want. Look more closely at what Paul says in verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So what's the purpose? The purpose is that we might belong to another and that we might bear fruit for God. So like the woman whose husband dies, the point is not that, that she can then go and sleep around with anyone that she wants. The point is that she's free to remarry. She's free from the obligation that she was under. She's free from that and she's free to become obligated to someone else. So it's not about uh, moving from being married to unmarried, but about moving from a bad marriage to a good marriage. If we belong to Jesus, we've been freed from the law, not to go off and do our own thing, but in order to be devoted to Jesus and to bear fruit for him. In our first marriage to the law, we bore fruit for death, but we've died to that in order to bear fruit for Jesus and to live for him. And if you've missed that, if you've missed the fact that we've been set free from the law for a purpose in order to be devoted to Christ, then you've missed the point of the gospel. If you're still living for yourself and not for Jesus, then you haven't understood what the gospel is actually about you've not received the gift that God is offering because the gift that God is offering is devotion to Jesus Christ freedom to be devoted to Jesus God's mission is not to forgive you so that you can live a life uh, for yourself without having to worry about hell God's mission is to free you from the condemnation and the power of sin in order to reconcile you to himself that you might bear fruit for God and be devoted to Jesus Christ. If you've missed that, you've missed the point of the gospel. But if you haven't missed that, if you aren't living for yourself, but if you are living for Jesus, and if every year you can look back and realize that you love Christ more, and every year you look back and you see that you've made more decisions to honor Christ than uh, rather than gratify yourself, if you look back and you see that you're growing and being devoted to Christ and bearing fruit for Christ, then you can look back and, and rejoice that you have understood the gospel. Because the gospel is working itself out in you. So the gift of the gospel is to be reconciled to God and devoted to Jesus Christ... I guess the question then is, how does the law fit into that? If we've been set free from the law in order to be devoted to Christ, what place does the law play, the Old Testament law play in our life? 
Well, it's important to realize, I think, that the law itself was not evil. Paul rejects that idea out of, out of hand. He says the problem was not with the law, the problem was with us. It's not that the law was evil, it's that the law was powerless to fix us up. And what's happened in the gospel is that we've been freed from the law as a kind of a master. We no longer obey God because it's written down in a, in a kind of set of rules carved out in stone. Instead, we obey because we love Christ. In other words, the basis of our obedience shifts from it's written down, therefore I must do it, to a relationship. I do it because I'm devoted to God in Jesus Christ. And within that context, what the law does is it paints a picture of God's plan and purpose for the world. So think of the Old Testament sacrifices. We're no longer under the Old Testament sacrifices. They point to Jesus, but they also point to the kind of style of life that God wants us to live, a life of devotion and sacrifice or a life of fellowship with the community. And so the law still, although we're not under it uh, as a law, it still gives us this kind of shape for the Christian life understood through the lens of the gospel. It gives us wisdom for what it means to be devoted to God. So we've been set free from the law in order to be devoted to Christ and bear fruit for him. Well, that sounds great in theory, doesn't it? Sounds like a really wonderful thing, but is that what we see as we live our lives for Jesus? And that's what Paul goes on to confront in the next section. In verse 14, he changes Paul from the past tense, I was... To the present tense, I am. So he's now not describing in verse 14 and following, he's not describing his experience before he was a Christian. He's describing his experience now that he has become a follower of Jesus. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So again, Paul says, although the law is good, he isn't. Although the law gives shape to what it means to live for God, Paul is frustrated in trying to live that out. And he goes on to illustrate that how, how that is. He says in verse 15 to 21, he kind of outlines this battle, this inner battle. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. So he's in this battle in which he seems almost capable of doing what it is that he wants to do. He wants to serve God, but he can't do it. And the things that he doesn't want to do, sin, he seems to keep finding himself falling into. But notice what he says. Look at verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. It almost sounds, doesn't it, like Paul is giving himself an excuse. Well, don't blame me for living like that. It's not me. It's just the sin within me. What's he talking about? Uh, He says the same thing in verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it. Don't blame me. But it is sin living in me that does it. Is Paul excusing himself? What's what's he trying to say? Not at all. Look at verse 24. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Paul's not excusing himself. He's not content to be in this place where he's not content to be in this battle. He's looking for for rescue from this battle. 
But what he's highlighting is the reality of the Christian life. That in the Christian life, there is a battle. It's a battle between the mind and the flesh. So look at the second half of verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Inside, I delight in God's law, but I see another work at, law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. So in his inner being, he delights in the law of God. He wants to do it, but there's also something at work in him which is fighting against that. It's the same in the second half of verse 25. So then I myself in my mind and am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. In my mind I want to obey God, but in my sinful nature I'm a slave to sin. The reality that Paul is describing is this. Our hearts and our minds have been awakened by the gospel, by the work of God, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Our minds and hearts have been awakened to love God and to want to serve God, but we remain living in fallen human bodies, living in a fallen world. And so there is this ongoing battle between what we want to do and the reality of still being marred by sin and being surrounded by sin. It's not that you can draw a dividing line through kind of any Christian and you'll find that their mind is pure and that their body is full of sin. That's not what Paul is trying to say. He's not trying to describe the mechanics or the anthropology, you know, it's not trying to describe how we work as human beings, mind and body. That's not what he's doing. He's just trying to latch onto this idea that inside we've been awakened to the things of God, and yet we live, we're, in, we're enfleshed in a, in a sinful world, as sinful people. And our ultimate redemption depends on, our, on, on, on the world in which we live and the bodies in which we live being set free from sin. Our hearts, our minds have been awakened if we know God to the things of God, but we live as sinful people in a sinful world. And some of you might be deeply conscious of that battle, that battle between wanting to serve God and being dragged down by the reality of sin in you and in the world. Uh, You might be struggling against greed uh, or envy or lust, or against selfishness, or against anger. And the frustration is that, like Paul, you end up doing exactly the thing that you don't want to do. You set out at the beginning of the day and you say, today I'm not going to be envious. Today I'm not going to be angry. Today I'm not going to be selfish. You want to be kind, but you say something out of turn. You don't want to be greedy, but you end up going to the shops and impulse buying once again. You're fighting, but you're stumbling. And Paul says that as frustrating as that is, it's part of the reality of life this side of the return of Jesus. It's because we remain in sinful human bodies in a sinful world. That doesn't mean that you just accept it. Paul is not accepting it. Paul is saying every day, who can rescue me from this body of death? 
If your mind and your heart has been awakened to the things of God, you can't be content with it. And when we fail, we need to keep turning back to the cross. We need to keep going back to the forgiveness of God and to seeking for Christ to be at work in us through the Holy Spirit. We don't give up the battle. We keep fighting the battle. Because we want more than anything to love and serve God. But the encouragement is that the fact that you're struggling and fighting in the Christian life doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. The fact that you're struggling against sin doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. In fact, the very reason that you're struggling, the very reason that there's a battle may be because your mind and your heart have been awakened to the things of God and you want to serve God. And the world and your sinful flesh is trying to drag you away from that. That said, the fact that there is a battle doesn't mean that you are a Christian. There are other reasons, I think, why there can be a battle. But if you love Jesus and if you really trust him and you delight in the things of God and you want, and you want to serve God and you're longing to obey him, then, then the reason that there's a battle in your life is because your heart is out of step with the world in which you live. And that problem will not be solved this side of the return of Jesus Christ. It is a battle from today until that day. So some people might be deeply, deeply aware of that struggle. And yet maybe there are others here too who just are listening and they're thinking, I don't, I, I don't see that. I do not see a battle. I don't see a struggle. Maybe you're unloving, maybe you're, you're bitter and, and, and you're making no effort to change that, to deal with that through, through the cross. Or maybe you're envious and actually rather than being discontent with that, you're actually nurturing that envy, feeding it. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and you're not fighting it. You're happy to go to that place. Maybe you've begun a sexual relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone who's not a, a spouse, your spouse, and you're content to be there, to live in that, in that double life. But let me say this, if there's no battle, then you're not a Christian. That's because the simple fact of being a Christian means by the very fact of belonging to Jesus you are caught in between two worlds if you belong to Jesus you're living already in the world that God is remaking in Jesus Christ your heart's there your mind is there but you're living in a world which is fallen and still in sin if there's no battle then you're not a Christian And if you're not a Christian, then you need to go back to square one and say to God, God, there's no battle in my life. There's sin here, but I'm, I'm content for it to be here. And you've got, to, you've got to rescue me from that because I can't do it. 
I can't do it because I'm content to stay here. I can't do it because no rules, no rituals, no regulations can set me free from it. You've got to do it. You've got to save me. You've got to make me spiritually alive. You have got to make me delight in my inner being in the things that you love. If there's no battle, then you're not a Christian. And the place to go is the place we always need to go, to the cross, to the life, to the gift handed out to us in Jesus Christ. So if we belong to Jesus, we've been set free from the law in order to bear fruit for God, and there's this battle. And when we realize that, we'll cry out with Paul, what a wretched man I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? But what's the answer? What's the solution to our predicament? How do we keep living in that battle? How do we live in that battle and not get depressed or discouraged? Well, Paul gives the answer to that question in the beginning of chapter 8. I want to read the first few verses, the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. Paul says there, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think of what he's just said. Wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the sinful flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Paul gives two solutions to our predicament. The first is no condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus became a sin offering. He died in our place. In his death, God condemned, Paul says, sin in the flesh. In just a few words, in really just a sentence, Paul unpacks one of the deep truths of the Bible, one of the great truths of the Bible. That is, this truth that although there is a battle at, at, um, waging within us, if we belong to Jesus, there's no condemnation. You see, the problem with this battle raging within us is that after a while we begin to ask this question. 
How can God love me when there's so much inside me which is at war with him? How can I be God's child when some days I find myself wanting to do the very things that I know that God hates? How can God really forgive me when the thing that I'm asking him to forgive me for today is the very thing that I asked him to forgive me for yesterday and the day before that and the day before that? And Paul's answer to that question is very simple. He says our relationship with God is not determined by the battle which is raging within us or the sin which so easily entangles us. Our relationship with God is defined by who we are in Christ. It's not the battle which defines our relationship with God, but it's who we are in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation for what you did yesterday or the day before, but more importantly... There is no condemnation for the battle which rages from this day until the return of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible calls justification. That is that God declares us to be right with him and he views us in terms of who we are in Jesus rather than who we are in ourselves. That doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us for sin or work to refine us, nor is it to say that our relationship with God can't be hampered or, 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 or made to struggle because of sin in our lives. It can. Obviously it can. The Bible tells us that. But what it means is that if we belong to Jesus, we're adopted into God's family and we can't cease to be God's child because of the battle that is raging within us. That status as a child of God is safe and secure if we belong to Jesus and if we continue to walk in him to the very end. So the first solution to our predicament is that there's no condemnation. We're justified. We belong to Jesus. But the second part of Paul's answer or God's answer to our human predicament is that Um, Because God accepts us and because he loves us and because God doesn't accept our sin, God promises to rip that sin out of our life. Paul says that God condemns sin in the flesh for a purpose so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us or better yet, so that it might be fulfilled in us. That is, God fulfills in us the good to which the law pointed but which it could never achieve. And he does that, God does that, by putting away condemnation in the cross and then uniting us with Jesus through the Holy Spirit so that we become like Jesus. All through this chapter, Paul continues that mind versus body contrast. Those who are only in the flesh, he says, live in accordance with the flesh. They can't do what God desires. But those who are in the spirit, according to verse 6, have their mind set on what God desires. It's the spirit who gives life in our inner being to know and to love the things of God. But notice this, it's that same spirit who will also give life to our bodies that are trapped in this sinful world. Verses 10 and 11, but if Christ is in you, that even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
in these two verses, Paul outlines the present reality, but also the future hope. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is dead, the Spirit gives you life. You're spiritually alive. You delight in the things of God in your inner being. Your heart is set on what God desires. And if the Spirit of God is in you, awakening your inner being to the things of God, then the day will come, says Paul, the day will come when that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise your physical body as well. When Jesus returns, God's people will be raised anew with new bodies, with bodies set free from sin and evil and set free into a world that is cleansed of sin and evil. The battle is not forever. It might go on for a very long time, for 20, for 30, for 40, for 50, for 60, for 70, for 100 years. Every day that you live on this earth and serve the Lord Jesus, the battle will go, may go on for a very long time, but the battle will not last forever. A day is coming when the battle will end. Imagine what that will be like. A day when sin will not destroy or ruin us or God's world. Imagine a world where no evil thought ever comes in to disturb all that's good and pure. We take evil thoughts so much for granted, I think, because they're so much a part of our everyday existence that we can't imagine a world where they don't exist. But imagine a world where no one else's achievement is ever spoiled by jealousy. Imagine a world where no good gift from God is ever devalued by greed for the better gift that God has given to somebody else. Imagine a world where no relationship with another person is spoiled by impure thoughts. Imagine a world where you're never even tempted to love someone or something more than God. Imagine a world where you never love yourself more than others. Imagine a world where you always think of yourself with sober judgment, neither full of pride nor full of self-pity. Uh, I have a friend who struggles uh, with same-sex attraction and one of his great troubles is that even the best gifts that God gives in terms of human relationships can be marred by sin, marred by inappropriate desires. And that man longs for the day when those desires are taken away. But his battle is not just his battle. It's the battle that we all face. A war that rages within us because our minds have been awakened to the things of God but we still live in bodies and in a world marred by sin. But the day is coming when it won't be like that. Praise the Lord.
And that is the world that God promises to you if you belong to him. If you belong to Jesus, you've been freed from the law to be devoted to Christ. And while the battle still rages, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And one day at the return of Jesus, that battle will be no more because we will be raised to be like Jesus in a world without sin and in which sin can never enter. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that what the law was powerless to do, you did in Christ Jesus. That what the law was powerless to do, that is to destroy sin in our lives and to enable us to live for you, what it was powerless to do, you have done by condemning sin in the flesh in Jesus and raising him to life through your Holy Spirit. And what Jesus has done for us, he now shares with us and you do in us through your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that if we belong to Jesus, we've died to sin and have been made alive to Christ. And Lord, what a precious treasure it is to look inside our hearts and to see that although we're not perfect, there is a sense that in our inner being we delight to do your things. We delight to know you, to serve you, to honour you. Lord, we delight to see sin diminish in our life and to obey Jesus more fully. And yet, Lord, so often... We're discouraged by the sin that so easily entangles us. Help us to live in the light of who we are as your children, not condemned, but purchased through the blood of Jesus. And help us to live in the light of that hope that one day sin will be no more. And no evil thought and no evil will ever possess us again. But Lord, we also want to pray for those among us, Lord, who are not battling. Or Lord, who are battling through without the gospel. We pray for those, Lord, who are content to be in sin. Lord, we ask that you would forgive them and open the eyes of their heart to the truth of Jesus Christ. That he died not just to forgive us, but to deliver us from evil. And Lord, we pray for those who are battling through with the blunt instrument of the law. Who are trying to conquer sin through their own efforts, whether it's rules or rituals or ceremonies or life practices, whatever it is. Lord, we ask that you would help them to see the futility of those ways and to turn to the crucified and risen Saviour in whom there is life and life forevermore. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.